Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for how wonderful you are and how worthy of praise you are. God, you have nothing but perfection. You have nothing but beauty, nothing but glory at all times, Lord. And we draw near to you this evening, Father, eagerly and expectantly aware of our sin, but eagerly and expectantly coming to you, knowing that you're a God who's gracious, that in Jesus Christ you've forgiven our sins and made a way for us to come to you, Father. You've made a way for us to experience forgiveness and salvation and to offer service and worship and life to you that is worthy and that actually brings praise to your name only because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God, we just want to be people who lift up your name and hallow your name, and we pray that this evening and this time together would be a time like that, Father. And Lord, um, we thank you that you are a God who's concerned about our lives. You're concerned about our day-to-day lives and the things that we do and the things that we need, the things that we participate in. You order all things according to the counsel of your will. And we just trust you in all things, and we trust you in all of our life, Lord. And we pray that you would increase our faith. Father, we pray that you would increase our trust in you, that we would be people who lean on you and rest in you and willingly submit to you throughout our lives and throughout our days, Lord, in whatever we occupy ourselves with. God, in that note, uh, in terms of you providing for us, taking care of us. Lord, we thank you so much for keeping Courtney and Millie McDonald safe today in their car accident that they were in. We pray that any lingering effects from that would be minimal, that any legal and other ramifications of that would also be easily solved, Lord. But just thank you for preserving them in that horrible moment. And uh, God, we thank you so much for that kindness And we also, in the same note, just thank you and pray for all the travelers that are out there. So many of our church members are gone this evening and are in different places on vacation. And we just pray that you would keep them safe as they journey and as they're away from us and that they would have a good time worshiping elsewhere today, Lord. And we also just want to continue to lift up those in our congregation who are grieving Father, we know that grief is not something that goes away immediately. It's not something when the rest of the world moves on, we know that the people who lost their loved ones, it doesn't move on as quickly for them. And so for all those who are grieving in our congregation, we just pray for them this evening, that they would have another moment here this evening as we worship where they can see your goodness and your grace and and fondly remember those that they love, but just look to you and find hope in you, Father. And I pray that we would be there to support and uplift them. And finally, Lord, I pray for the crusade, the evangelistic outreach that's going on in October. I pray that some of the people who come forward at this event, this event that in many ways is probably flawed, in many ways is not theologically as we would hope it to be. We just pray that through good counseling and through your providence that the people would hear the gospel truly proclaimed and repent of their sins and draw near to you, Father. 
and that we would be able to play a part in helping those people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that those hopes and prayers for a revival, for a movement of your spirit in our city and in our town, all around our neighborhood would be realized because of your grace, Lord, and your granting of that spirit, Father. And Lord, uh, I just want to thank you for this moment where we get to hear your word. Feed off of the only word that can feed us as spiritual people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and know Jesus Christ. So I pray that your word would minister to us and that our hearts would be open to receiving it. Give us grace this evening in that regard, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The text for this evening is Exodus 35, verse 1 to 36, verse 7. So we got quite a little bit of reading to do. And so we're going to enjoy that as the word of the Lord is, is opened up to us and pay attention to the way that God here is unpacking the instructions, the guidelines for how the collection of the supplies and the, the items that were needed for building the tabernacle and establishing the priesthood are outlined here for us in Exodus. Moses giving guidance to the people. So let's read here. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in Exodus 35, verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and fragrant incense, the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garment for ministering in the holy place, the holy garment for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, 
all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. He has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has, filled him, he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver, or by a designer, or by an embroiderer in blue and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that, at, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This is the word of the Lord. So, so far in our series on Exodus, if you haven't been here so far, we have been focusing more on the overarching redemptive themes, the biblical theology, if you will, of how this book relates to the other parts of Scripture, as well as how this book and the stories and the content of Exodus point us to Jesus. That's what largely we've been focusing on. We haven't been focusing so much on the, the little finer points of detail on the different, uh, for instance, in this passage, the different parts like the type of wood or Things like that that you can really get deep into if you wanted to spend seven years on it. So what we're doing is we're looking at the big picture. So if you look at verses 10 to 18, we're not going to read that right now, but there it's actually a summary of uh, the parts of 
this, of this uh, book that we've already covered. So Hal and I preached a sermon earlier. I preached one on the tabernacle, and that was considering all the different parts of the tabernacle. And then Hal preached one on the priesthood, all the different parts of the priesthood, which are in a blueprint form communicated to us in chapters 25 to 31. So this evening, we're not going to deal with that again. But what I would recommend for you is if you're curious or you want to hear more about that, please go back and listen again to those. They're available to be listened to. But instead, uh, this evening I'm going to take a bit of a different direction. We're not going to focus on those aspects as much. Instead, we're going to focus on the people in this chapter. We're going to focus on the people in this chapter. And most specifically, we're going to focus on their hearts. We're going to focus on the hearts of the people serving God in this chapter. So while I was reading that long text, you probably noticed some parts jump out to you. You probably noticed that the people are tithing, they're offering their belongings to God so that the Israelites could establish the tabernacle and set up the priesthood. And you also probably noticed that many times in this chapter, it talks about the hearts of the people, right? It talks about their hearts. It talks about in their acts of service and worship um, that they that God here comments frequently, well, Moses writing, but God, the ultimate author of Scripture, frequently commenting on their hearts, the disposition of their hearts, the significance of their hearts. So what we want to understand is that Moses being so repetitive reminds us of the critical importance of having our heart in the right place when it comes to worshiping and serving God. Our heart needs to be in the right place. So let's look at some of these verses briefly again. Let's look at these verses related to our hearts, to the people and their hearts. So let's look at verse 5, 35 verse 5. Here it says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, and so forth. And jump down to verse 21. It says, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And just down into verse 22. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Look at verse 26 there too. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And in 36 verse 2, Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. So this passage makes it quite clear that the heart matters a lot in our service and our worship to God. It's a very important aspect. And in this respect, Moses' writing here in Exodus is no different from many other parts of Scripture. For instance, Jesus Christ says himself, In agreement with the prophet Isaiah, when he's speaking to his listeners, he says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And this is another verse that Pastor Thomas quoted this morning from 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So it's so important that we understand, first of all, the importance of the heart as it connects to worship. But we'll look a little bit more at that now. But we also need to note that in biblical times, the way they thought of the heart is different from the way we think of the heart. And you might have heard this before, but it's worth repeating. The word heart in the Bible doesn't refer to our lovey-dovey feelings, nor does it refer to this organ in our chest that pumps our blood. Rather, the heart, when used in Scripture, is used in relation to things like emotions, desires, and will. All those making the heart of the person... Another way of saying it is that it is used in relation to what people want. The heart is related to what people want, what they think, what they feel, and what they choose. So wanting, thinking, feeling, and choosing is what the heart does from a biblical point of view. So if the heart is related to wanting, thinking, feeling, and choosing, then it makes a lot of sense that the heart is so connected to pleasing God, to serving God. Serving God has a lot to do with wanting, with thinking, with feeling, and with choosing. The reality is a person may do or say the right things outwardly, like Jesus was talking there to the Pharisees in that verse I just quoted. They might do or say the right things outwardly, but if they fail to desire God, or if they fail to rightly think about God, or if they fail to choose God above all else, or if they fail to feel joy and gratitude towards God, then that means there's something wrong with their worship. They aren't worshiping God the way God wants to be worshipped. They aren't worshiping God in God's way. So they could think that they're worshiping God, but if a person's heart is in the wrong place, then their worship is not coming from the right place. And that's so critical. The heart needs to be in the right place. So this passage this evening shows us very clearly the importance of the heart in our service towards God And so our objective this evening, our objective is going to be to better understand what is the heart of Christian service. What is the heart of Christian service? So when it comes to this, what is the heart of Christian service? How do we understand that better? The first thing we need to understand is that the Christian heart works from a place of rest. Works from a place of rest. That sounds kind of counterintuitive. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in, in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Excuse me. Notice there. What is at the beginning of this whole section? This whole section is about service, about donation, about the Israelites bringing their offerings to God. This section of worship and service through the collection for and then the construction of the tabernacle starts out with a repeat of the Sabbath command. The Sabbath command, the commandment that Prashant preached on earlier. One in seven days, out of all their collecting, all their doing, all their living, is supposed to be spent resting. They must spend that seventh day resting. And this is because God is repeating it here at the very beginning of this list because things that get put on the end usually are not the priority, right? 
But here he sticks the rest principle at the very beginning, and this is what he's doing. He's reminding the Israelites where their hearts and their focus should be in all of their doing, all of their giving that they are about to participate in. All of their doing and giving needs to be coming from a place of rest. They need to keep God as a central thing. They're supposed to be doing their doing and giving their giving from a place of Sabbath rest. So the Sabbath law, what it teaches the people of Israel, if you, as just a refresher, is that in their working, they're not working to earn anything before God, but instead they are working out of thankful worship to God. Right? That's what they're doing. So when they have this at the beginning, that's to remind the Israelites, yo, we've got to take one day off, not just for our physical rest, that's also important, they get tired, but also because... We can't earn anything before our God. No matter how many offerings or gifts or things we bring, we have to take a rest and realize that it's God who does the working. Just the way that God rested on the seventh day when he created everything, right? God created the world and everything in it, including the Israelites, right? including the Israelites themselves, and then he rested on the seventh day. So God also created everything that they would be giving to Him. Right? He created the stuff He's asking them in this passage to give back to Him. They're literally giving God back His own stuff. They're literally giving to God what belongs to Him. So clearly they must not be earning something from Him or working um, to somehow garner favor before Him or to um, work from some kind of, a, kind of a debtor's mentality. Rather, they're working from a place of rest. A place of relationship with God. That's what this, is, that's what this Sabbath principle put, put at the beginning is all about. They can't earn anything or prove anything to God. All that they can do is thankfully and reasonably offer up their service to Him. Service must come from a place of rest, of humble rest in God. So you might be wondering, why is the punishment for disobeying the Sabbath so severe? In verse... Uh, Verse 2 at the end of it, it says, Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. That relates perfectly with what we're saying about how our work and our life needs to be coming and our actions need to be coming from a place of rest. Because Sabbath breaking is a crime that displays an evil heart, an evil heart that does not rest in God and that is working from a place of pride, a place of self-sufficiency, a place of earning God's favor. That's what somebody who's a disobeying the Sabbath is saying. I don't need rest. I can do this myself. I can do it on my own strength. I can earn things. I can do things. It's not a heart that's humbly resting in their Savior. And the fact is that pride, self-sufficiency, and trying to earn something before God have always led to death. Remember in the Garden of Eden when, we were, when Adam and Eve were proud and self-sufficient and they turned to their own way? It said they will surely die. It's always led to that. So there's no surprise here that if you disobey the Sabbath commandment, then you also are going to surely die because you're living a life not where you're working and doing and pleasing and serving God out of a place of rest in Him, of Sabbath rest and acknowledging His sufficiency, but rather from a place of your own self-sufficiency. So at the end of the day, when it comes to this topic of working from a place of rest, the testimony of the whole Bible as well as each and every one of our own Christian lives, if we have the Spirit and we know Christ, is that God works on behalf of those who wait for Him. 
He works on behalf of those who rest in Him. He works and He conquers and He accomplishes mighty things through those who lean on Him. Right? Those who rest in Him. We can often do, interestingly enough, we can often do more in one minute. In one minute of sincere rest in God and praying for His help than we could in ten years of our own striving and our own effort. And God has always worked that way and He always wants us to acknowledge and understand that. They are not working here. The Israelites are not doing this as an end into itself. They're not bringing all this gold, all this silver, all this wood, all this stuff together as some kind of an end or purpose in and of itself. The reason they're doing this is so that God can dwell with His people. So that He can make a home, a tabernacle with His people. The point of all this is worship. The tent they are building is, as, is so that they can have rest with God and enter into, this, into the rest with Him in the promised land. So that they can travel with Him, with Him in their midst, and then rest with Him. So even while they're working with all their might on this tabernacle, they must not forget the Sabbath day of rest. They must work from a place of rest. And how many of us need to hear this? How many of us are not working from a place of rest? How many of us are not doing our things from a place of acknowledging God and His power and His strength and the fact that we can rest in Him because of the goodness of Christ Jesus our Lord? God does not so much ask us to work for Him or earn His approval as much as He asks us to rest in Him and allow Him to work through us. Scripture says this, it says that our good works are prepared in advance for us to walk in them. If that were not true, how, how like this, this principle of working from a place of rest is so applicable there, right? God literally prepared our good works in advance for us to walk in them. So that means we don't have to stress about them, we don't have to muster them up from in and of ourselves. We have to trust in Him, lean on Him, and rest in Him as we work as we donate like the Israelites were, as we contribute to the building of His kingdom, as we do the things that are necessary. Now sadly, someone is going to misuse this truth and they're going to think that this means that they don't have to put in any effort. They're going to think this means that they don't have to put in any work. We don't have to deal with that too much because for those who have the Spirit, they know the difference and they know the joy of serving Christ when they're working from a place of resting in Him, and that fuels you. It makes you want to work more. It makes you want to work harder. It makes you want to love people more. It makes you want to donate more. It makes you want to just be a better Christian. They know the difference between working from that place of rest in Christ and from working from a place where you're trying to do it all yourself. A Christian knows this. So somebody's going to twist this and say, well, then I don't have to do anything. I can just work from a place of rest. But that's obviously not the point. And that's obviously not the spiritual message that we need to know. So by His grace, the Father has sent the Son to conquer sin and death. And He's brought the whole world. And He's bringing the whole world eventually into a state of perfect rest. That's, what, that's literally the Gospel. That the Father sent the Son to conquer sin and death and everything that's evil and wrong and unrest and bring the whole universe, the whole world into perfect rest. So if that is our future, if that's our future reality as Christians, why in the world would God want us to work in the present day from a place of panic or a place of insecurity 
or a place of fear. That's kind of an outrageous concept. He's literally bringing everything in the universe to rest. And so we can, as Christians, if we trust in Christ, we lean on Him, we have confidence in His steady and victorious arms, we can, we can just work from a place of rest. So now that we've seen this, let's look at another key aspect of our Christian service, which is that the Christian heart gives and serves from a place of willingness. Gives and serves from a place of willingness. So throughout this passage, there are so many things that indicate that this giving and this serving was pleasing to God because it came from a place of willingness, a place of eagerness. It came up from people's hearts. Let's read verse 5 together. It says in verse 5, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. It's willing. It's generous. This person is giving from a willing spirit. And let's read verse 22 again. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. And then they brought all those things from a willing heart. And in verse 29, it says, let's read that too. It says, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord, had come. That the work of the that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. It's a free will offering. So that sounds exactly like what it sounds like. It means that it's not obligatory. A free will offering offering means that Moses did not compel them or twist their arm or God did not do anything like that. This is something that they can bring or they cannot bring. Whenever this is used in reference to an offering in Scripture, it's always in in relation to generosity. It's always in relation to willingness. It celebrates generosity and willingness. So interestingly, Moses didn't compel them to bring a certain amount. He didn't say, bring this many things of gold or this many things of wood, the things that they needed. It was actually all up to their own generosity and their own will. And this this beautiful how the scriptures actually illuminate this for us. Because this same language that's used here to describe their free willingness, their free offering to God in the things that they brought forward, this same language is actually used elsewhere in scripture to describe a plentiful or abundant rainfall. The way that the rain falls from the heavens plentifully and willingly over in Psalm 68. And it also is used to refer to the freedom with which God loves sinners in Hosea 14, verse 4. There he says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. The same freedom or willingness or free will offering with which these people were to bring their things, that same concept is used there to describe the love of God. That's amazing if you think about it. Obviously we know, obviously we know that they are not saying that they are not loving as well as God does, but it still gives a wonderful image for us to understand what's meant here by this free will offering that is on display. And this coincides perfectly with what the New Testament teaches, what Paul tells us in the New Testament when he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here we've seen it. We've seen that the Israelites are giving and serving Freely from a place of willingness. So now it's worth asking ourselves what made them willing? What is it that made them so willing? Why are they like this? And the reality is 
Just a few chapters earlier, they were the opposite of willing. In fact, they were giving all the same stuff to build an idol. Crazy. Just a few chapters earlier, they were building a a golden calf out of the same types of things that they were bringing forward. So what's changed in the meantime? The thing that's changed in the meantime is that God has showed a bunch of sinners, undeserving, unloving, idolatrous sinners, grace. That's what's changed. The thing that's caused them to be so willing, the thing that's caused them to have this kindness and this um, willingness to give has been the grace of God has been the lavish grace of God through the mediator that Moses was for them, ultimately Christ being their mediator. That's what made them so willing to give. So much like the Israelites, may the Lord give us all a greater view of God's graciousness in Jesus Christ. If we have a greater view of God's graciousness in Jesus Christ, then our hearts can become open. Our hearts don't close in. Our hearts open to be giving, to be willing to give. We'll stop investing in the temporary things, the temporal things, the things of this world, our idols, if you will, and we'll start being able to invest in the kingdom. We'll start being able to invest in the things of God. If we look to the cross, if we look to Christ, we've received so much, brothers and sisters, in the cross. We've received so much in Jesus Christ that we really should not help but be open and willing and generous in giving towards people who are in need towards the kingdom of God and its growth and its flourishing. And one of the enemy's number one attacks in this regard, one of the things that Satan is definitely going to do in this regard, is that he's going to try to make people unwilling to serve, unwilling to act generously because he wants to make us think we are not rich. He wants you and I to think we're not rich. But in fact, we are so rich Satan convinces you that you need to be a monger and a scrounger and keep all your money and your things to yourself. You need to not be generous with your time and your skills and your things because he wants you to think that if you are generous and if you're gracious, if you're kind, then God won't provide all of your needs. God won't take care of you. But the Scriptures teach us that Christ, that in Christ, God has already given us all things, it says. It says all things. We've received all things in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.22, it says, Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. That means that not one thing worth having that doesn't, that there's not one thing worth having that doesn't already belong to us. There's not one thing in the world worth having that does not already belong to us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why he says, he lists all these things. This is Paul's way always of saying everything, all included. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come. Anything in there that's worth having is already yours as a Christian. And so therefore, we can serve from a place of willingness Because there's nothing that someone can get from us when we give it away that's going to make us any more poor. We're just going to be literally richer. We we have everything there is to have. So when we give things away, all we do is we receive joy because it's more blessed to give than to receive after all. God has graciously given us all things which will open our hearts to be more giving. And this is just like that lady. Remember the lady in Jesus is uh, in the Gospel of Luke who who walks into the room at a Pharisee's house and starts pouring costly oil on Jesus. 
And everyone judged Jesus and said, how can you let this dirty, filthy woman who's not a good woman put this oil on you? Regarding that woman, Jesus says in Luke 7.44, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. We have all things, and if Christ has forgiven us so much, then we have such an openness to be able to give. See, it says, forgiven little, loves little. But if you're forgiven much, like this lady was, you'll love much. That means your heart becomes open to giving, to being generous, to, to serving others. So, I think it's worth noting here that this is not a matter of manipulating God ever when it comes to giving. Televangelist comes on the TV and tells you, give this much money, God will do this for you. Or He'll give you a car. Or He'll give you twice as much money. Or whatever. None of this is about manipulating God. Because how ridiculous is that? To give God back what already belongs to Him when you're already the richest person on earth and then literally expect that to twist His arm somehow to give you more stuff. It's an insane proposition. But we fall for it. People fall for it all the time. That's why those guys are flying in private jets all the time. When it comes to giving, it's all about the grace that God has shown. The Israelites here, right? They've received tremendous grace. They all should have been... What what should have happened to them? Remember when we preached on Exodus 33? What should have happened to them is they should have been destroyed. They should have been demolished. They should have been consumed by the holiness of God. But instead, they received grace. And so here they give because they've received grace. Not only were they willing to give, but they were actually willing to give their best. They weren't just willing to give something. They were willing to give their very best. And uh, throughout the passage, we saw that they gave their very best things. They gave precious metals. They gave stones. They gave fabrics. They gave crafts. They gave all kinds of supplies and time and skills. Yeah, they even gave their best skills to God. You see that throughout the passage. For instance, between verses 30 to 36, verse 7, it talks about these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, and the people that they trained, as well as the skillful women. The skillful women contributed to this work, which this is a little off topic, but I think worth saying. This passage mentions women a lot in the work in God's kingdom to build the tabernacle of God. So we don't hear about women that often in this book of Exodus. In fact, we heard Miriam in the song in 15. And then, and then before that, we heard about the midwives. And before that, we also heard about the princess and Zipporah. Those are early on in the book, sparse little mentions. But in this crucial task of gathering everything and building the tabernacle, women are mentioned a lot. In verse 22, the beginning of it there, it says... Um, So they came, both men and women. It intentionally notes that for some reason. It doesn't just say Israelites came. It says men and women. It makes sure that we know that the women came to participate. In verse 25 and 26, Every skillful woman spun with her hands. They all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill. In verse 29, says, all the men and the women of Israel whose hearts moved them. So it's repeating over and over, including the women in this program, which he hasn't done for quite some time. And so I think this is an important message for all women, all men as well, to understand the role of women, is that 
Moses is here intentionally mentioning the key role that women play in the covenant community. Using their skills, using their abilities. Sometimes in Reformed circles, those who have a biblical understanding regarding the authority, headship, regarding gender roles in church, sometimes we can go so far to the extreme on the other side that in response to feminism and other things like that, sometimes women may feel that their gifts are not used or that they don't have a place in the covenant community to do something worthwhile. So since the days of Exodus, I want you all to know God has always had an essential role for women to play just as He does today, just as He does in our church today. So just because you aren't in the pulpit, just because God says you're not supposed to have authority over a man, that doesn't mean that you aren't crucial to the life and the growth and the establishment of God's plans and His kingdom. Just the same way that the women here were participating in the most important thing ever. They were literally helping build the tabernacle where God would dwell. Can you believe it? It's amazing. And so just don't be discouraged in, in light of that, but just remember this. Remember this passage when you think of your role. Find ways to contribute. Find ways that your gifts can be used. And we as men should also be facilitating that in any churches, anywhere. And so back to our point we were on is that the abundance of God's grace allowed the Israelites to give not only something, but their best things and their best skills. And they gave them willingly. And the interesting thing here is too, they could bring anything that was approved. As long as it was on the list of things, they could bring it. So not everyone had the same level of contribution or the same amount of things that they could bring. But the important thing to realize is that God valued all the things that were brought. As long as it was something that they brought freely, as long as they brought it willingly from a heart that was right before God, God saw that as wonderful. He saw that as blessed. He saw that as a, as a good donation. And this is just like that widow. Remember the widow in the, in the Gospels? She brought one coin and all the other people were bringing their whole bags and bags of things. But because she brought from the heart her one possession, the best she could do, that was all she had. God saw that as wonderful. He saw that as blessed. And so you see the importance of this willing and freely giving heart and this generous heart that casts all of its care and all of its um, trust in Christ when it gives. And so the idea that we need to note here is that God accepts what we give in accordance with our ability and our possessions. which is very encouraging for us. Very encouraging for those who might lack in some capacity. There's someone in here sitting who thinks, I'm too poor to give financially. Or, um, I can't give in some other skill or some other way because I just don't have any talents or abilities. Even if you can't sing well, if you sing it from the heart, God still accepts that offering of praise. If all you have is one coin like that little lady in the Gospel, in that parable, then you see there that the riches of, of the fullness of a heart of willingness is seen in her. And God accepts that. God looks at the heart. He has no need of anything anyways. And so therefore, it makes a lot of sense that He looks at the heart, right? He has no need of anything you can give Him. So the fact that you're bringing the best you can from a willing heart is pleasing to Him. You're not going to please Him because you have more bags and more things to bring. You can't make Him richer. And so it's literally... Our heart, our spirit, our willingness, our, our inner man that God sees when we're doing things for Him, when we're serving Him, 
when we're tithing, any of those things. So like, we see that they gave their best, but we also see an interesting thing here at the, in the last point on this section, which is that the Israelites gave more than was needed. They gave more than was needed. In fact, they gave as much as they possibly could. It says in verse 36, or chapter 36, verse 3, the second part there, it says, um, they still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning. This means that every day when they got there and gave something, they went back home and they were like sitting there in their living room like, what, what else can I bring? And then the next day they brought it again. And so they literally brought more than enough. They just kept on coming. Kept on coming back with more things. They kept thinking of, what can I give to God today? And they literally just from the abundance of their heart and the overflow. We see that in verses 5. Uh, we don't have to read this 36 verse 5 to 7 as well. This process of them just bringing more than enough. More than enough. Eventually it gets to the point where they could actually not bring anymore. Because it was too much. They brought more than enough. Um, they could always just find something in themselves to come and to bring more. So, the challenge to us then is to look at our own possessions and our own life in the same way. Go home tonight like the Israelites did every day when they brought something and think, what else can I give to God? How else can I use my skills and my abilities, my life, my talents, my money for the kingdom? Let's, let's have a more than enough mentality. Let's have a bring more than we think we can mentality instead of a let's hold things to ourselves or bring just the bare minimum amount. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Isn't that wonderful? It's literally saying, bring more than enough and you will be blessed. Continue to do so. So now we've seen that the Israelites have been giving willingly of their possessions for the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So how much greater of a calling is it to us today to give to the kingdom of God, His universal tabernacle, His church in the world where His Spirit dwells. This should be a huge motivator for us to be generous and to willingly offer from our hearts our sacrifices unto God. So God has called each of us to participating in building His new spiritual house with the gifts that we've been given. And so we have this wonderful opportunity willingly from the heart, the Christian service that comes from where it's meant to come from in a way that God wants it to take place. So this last aspect now that we're going to see, and uh, for all of your benefit, it will be short <laughs> to close the sermon. Um, the Christian heart acts from a place of empowerment. It acts from a place of empowerment. Let's read verse 31 together. 35 verse 31. Talking about Bezalel, and not a holy ab yet, but those master skilled workers, wise master workers that are included in our passage. He's talking about him there in verse 31. He says, He has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. God has filled him. Bezalel has been filled by God. In verse 34, jump down to 34, it says, God has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He's inspired him. God is working a power and an inspiration and a, and a filling in this man. In verse 35, it says, He has filled them with skill. 
God has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. In 36 verse 1, again it says, Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So the Lord has put this in them. The Lord is inspiring these workers. The Lord is the one empowering His service. The Lord is the one empowering them to do things for Him, to serve Him and to worship Him. This is interesting to note too. This is a much different view of humanity and people than what a lot of people in our world would like to have. What this passage is showing us is there's certain people who the Lord has given skills to to do certain things, and there's other people who He has not. We live in a world where everyone would like to think that everyone has exactly equal skills in every single capacity. But that's not even how the kingdom of God works, much less the natural world and the way we observe things to be. In fact, some people are especially empowered, especially gifted. Every single Christian, by the way, is gifted and empowered in a meaningful way and has a gift and has a usefulness in the kingdom. But what we need to understand is for those who are especially gifted, those like Bezalel, Oholiab, and others in our church today, to whom much is given, much will be required. So we think of the world, you know, this inequality thing where some people have and some people have not, where there's not this equilibrium that everyone's aiming for. The reality is God sobers us all when He goes, to whom much is given, much will be required. Right? So we have to understand that as we dive in. But also, this service, this work that the Israelites are doing here, they're building, they're skill, they're collecting, everything that's taking place is according to God's empowerment. He's the one who's pouring these skills, pouring this inspiration, filling them with this ability. He's the one who's provided this wisdom to be able to do what He's calling them to do. God has placed this in them. He's placed it there. So the Bible says, very interestingly, He says this. The Bible says, in in what Paul has said, He says, By the Spirit, God works in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. God working in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. So clearly the Christian heart acts from a place of empowerment, from God being in us, working in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. And so what is this empowerment? How ought we to think of it as Christians? How are we supposed to think of this spiritual empowerment to do the things that God wants us to do, to serve Him in a way that pleases Him? This empowerment is the Holy Spirit lifting our eyes. Lifting up our eyes to look at Jesus Christ, to look at the cross, which is the place where Jesus won our rest. It's the place where He brought everything to rest. It's also the place where we realize that Jesus gave us all things. It's also the place where Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross to bear our sin and all the weight and punishment that we deserve. And so it's from this place that all of a sudden we have this freedom and this willingness like I was talking about. That is that empowerment. If it sounds like a broken record throughout the sermon, that's the point. It's literally, that is the way we are empowered. By looking to Jesus Christ, by resting in God, by having a clear view of all the wonderful blessings, the many things that God has given to us. This makes our service pleasing to Him. This makes us open up and be generous. This makes us willing 
does everything that God wants us to do. So there's a really interesting phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. When he's talking about his work in the church and his work in building up the kingdom of God, Paul says there that he considers himself to be a wise master builder. Wise master builder. And in that way, I think he's calling us to look back here at Bezalel and Oholiab, these men who are specially ordained here as wise master builders. These guys are the special guys that are empowered to do an extraordinary work. Like Paul the Apostle, an extraordinary early work in the church to establish, to write so much of Scripture, to get so much of this building of the church up and running. Paul works as a wise master builder. But take note of this. What does Paul say is the foundation of the building that he's building? Paul says the one who empowers it all, the one who is the source of the strength of the building, the one who is the head of the body, the church, that one is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who's the foundation. Jesus Christ is the one who's all the empowerment and the stability and everything that's required in that building. That's reflecting, that imagery reflects back to the building here of the tabernacle. Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the one in whom we find all our rest, all of our willingness, and all of our empowerment is Jesus. It was the fact that God had been gracious to the Israelites and promised to dwell with them in the tabernacle. It was that fact that led the people to a heartfelt service of God, that led them in our passage to come to this position where they could serve God from a heart that truly was Christian, a heart that truly was right. So likewise, we need to always be fixated on Jesus Christ, the one who came. He dwelt with us. He tabernacled with us. He became a man and died on the cross to save sinners like us. And that needs to be at the very core, at the very heart of all of our Christian service, of all of our preaching, all of our teaching, all of our evangelism, all of our raising our families, all of anything that we do that's for the kingdom of God always must be done with Jesus Christ, like Paul says, as the foundation. Jesus Christ is the rock that keeps it all steady. He's the one that empowers it, that breathes life into it. Without His Spirit, Without looking to the cross and being filled with the Spirit, that, that is a hopeless task. But with that, we feel Him giving us the strength to do what we must do. So in all three of these things that we've looked at, these three aspects that regard uh, the Christian's service, the point is Christ. Christ does it. He does it by His Spirit that's working through us. And that is why Jesus said, what does He say? He says, without me... Remember, we're talking about Christian service. That means what we're doing, the way we worship, the way we're living. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, the foundation. Without me, the empowerment. Without me, the one who gave the Spirit and poured it out to give you hope, to give you what you need to do this work, to, call, to fulfill your calling as a Christian. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. So brothers and sisters, let's enter into this week with new resolve. Let's try to work from a place where we're resting in God. Let's put our eyes on Christ. Let's rest in Him. Let's be willing 
And let's fill ourselves because we're looking at Christ. Let's be empowered by Him to do everything and to serve Him in a way with a heart, with a heart, with a life and a heart that's truly Christian, with a heart that's in the right place before Him. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Dear Father, God, we thank You so, so much that You have shown us so much mercy and grace on the cross and sending Your Son to die for our sin, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that we would... that we would have eyes to see You, that we would be filled up with Your Spirit, that we would be empowered to do the work that we're called to do, Lord, that we would rest in You, Lord, Sabbath rest as we work faithfully resting in You. And I pray that You'd help us to see, Father, that we've received all things in Jesus Christ. All things. We're already rich. And so, Lord, help us to be generous in our work for Your kingdom and our love towards everyone around us. In Jesus' name, Amen.